0: From coast to coast, we're bridging the gap between the cisgender and transgender community, creating meaningful dialogue and space to learn and grow.
1: Join us as we connect with our community, break down tough conversations, and get comfortable being better humans.
0: The Aces Podcast is proudly brought to you by TD Group. Hello and welcome to Hesis. We've seen a huge jump in listenership this season and we want to do a big shout out to all of you. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, and taking an interest in going beyond binary with sin and I.
1: We're also doing a little celebrating over at Simply Good Form. We are literally over the moon, uh, with hearing we've been named finalists in the Halifax Chamber of Commerce Best New Business 2023 category. You're going to have to watch this space, though, um, and there is a bit of a space theme happening uh, with the awards, um, but you have to watch this space until January 26th when the winners are going to be announced. We're just thrilled to have been made finalist alongside some of the new amazing businesses here in Halifax, right, Isaac?
0: Yeah, and we'll be sharing the link down in the show notes, right, Sen?
1: Yeah, yeah, we will pop them in there. But for now... We are going to be going under the sea. In this episode, we are joined by two salty ocean scientists from MEOPAR, who I know, Isaac, will have a lot in common with. Um, We're going to introduce them both to you in one moment. But first, for those of you who don't know what MEOPAR stands for, Isaac, want to break it down for us? It's
0: my pleasure. So MEOPAR stands for Marine Environmental observation prediction and response network that's m-e-o-p-a-r it is a national network of centers of excellence linking top marine researchers and highly qualified personnel across canada with partner organizations and communities and today's guests joining us from meopar are alexa goodman and aaron judah alexa uses they them pronouns and is meopar's training program manager they are passionate about doing good for our planet and its people by shifting awareness into action Alexa says they use their curiosity, compassion, and strong project management to lead the way.
1: We are also joined by Erin Judah. Erin uses he, him pronouns, is a marine ecologist who focuses on the functionality of marine ecosystems under human impacts and global change. In addition to being an honors bachelor of science in marine biology student at Dalhousie University here in Halifax, Erin is also an equity and diversity representative at the Dalhousie Association of Marine Biology. Welcome to Hey Sis, Erin and Alexa.
2: Thank you so much for
0: having us. Thank you for joining us. And very, <laughs> Sid and I are both extremely excited for this conversation. So uh, I am. Too. Oh yeah,
2: it's gonna be great.
0: <laughs> and how are you doing, Alexa?
1: I am okay. Just another great day in Halifax. I know. I know. I'm oh. feeling it too. <laughs> and sticky. It's sticky yes. out there. Mm-hmm.
0: So not only are you both. Uh, ocean scientists, but you're both queer ocean scientists, which is an extra special layer. Um, so Alexa, in particular, before we dive into your role as a marine biologist at Mayo Park, can you share a little bit about what those two intersections of your identity and how they interplay with each other within your everyday life?
3: Hmm. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start off with a broad sweeping statement by saying, I truly believe that nature is queer and especially marine biology and marine life, it's all a little bit queer. Um, And I think I actually recognize that in the world around me before I recognize it in myself um, for a variety of reasons. Um, But I think being a a queer ocean scientist uh, allows us to have a more holistic approach to the work that we do. Um, I'm not sure if it's just my own personal Uh, background and upbringing, Um, but the adversities that queer folks face and other minority groups I think allows us to see issues and problems with a more broad perspective and we're able to see the intersectionalities and how various issues kind of play out. So my role with MEOPART is actually more on the training side of things rather than the biology side of things, Um, but being queer has allowed me to try my best to foster safe spaces and create those environments that may have not necessarily been there uh, for myself when I was moving through uh, my education in marine biology and marine management and early in my career too.
1: I, I, I there's so many things I wanna unpack there, but just on the last note, what like you said about, you know, how maybe you're trying to, you know, really work to create these safe spaces that weren't there when you were going through. What did you feel like you missed the most? Like, what did you feel were some of the biggest barriers around inclusion when you were going through and doing your degree?
3: Hmm. I think one of the biggest things I noticed is kind of the higher up you go in academia, the more streamlined those folks in positions of authority um, or higher up in academia are, um, you know, not necessarily seeing as many openly queer um, scientists was really challenging, although I am proud to say that um, Dalhousie actually does have, a, I think, a really strong uh, representation, at least in uh, the biology department for, for, for queer professors and teaching associates and, and all of that. Um, But I will say that the narrative is still predominantly uh, cis-heteronormative, and I don't know that um, I necessarily was as attuned to it as I am now. Um, But I think had I have been um, more aware of my identity as I was going through school, maybe I would have noticed more, um, more barriers. But I think I was really focused on my studies at that point in time.
0: No, it makes perfect sense. and I'm gonna ask this question to both of you because i this is one of my favorite questions to ask uh, queer individuals who work within stem in particular in sciences. But do you find there's a lot of folks within well within their careers, usually of older generations that with a science background it, it's more difficult uh to be? queer or LGBTQ or at least have that understanding because they have the stereotypical like biology perspective on things or do you find that that's really being reshaped in in
2: modern day I guess I can take a first stab at this I'm still kind of going through the whole process of you know undergraduate and everything and I've been able to interact with a lot of different professors and I feel like it is changing I feel like professors now have a lot more of an understanding of gender and of the biological associations of gender. So it is getting better. I will say, though, that they're also from especially queer professors of an older generation or from a prior generation where things were not, you know, a lot of them speak about not having anybody else um, who are gender nonconforming or LGBTQ plus or any other um, identities along those lines. So they didn't have the role models and that community aspect that I think Alexa and I are Um, maybe didn't have in the past, but we're starting to see now, like, I live in a household of four other queer marine biologists, so, like, it is, we have a much more of a network community now starting to grow, and I feel like they didn't have that opportunity, so even though they may be sometimes a bit more, or other professors may be a bit more behind on, you know, understanding diversity, especially when it comes to gender and sexuality, I feel like they're, they're getting there, and they're moving towards, you know, better understanding and better also supporting students who are coming to their labs who identify along these categories.
1: Oh, I love that. That is, is, I I mean, I'm so inspired to hear that, you know, you're living with four queer ocean biologists, um, like, because, like, how big is the department itself? Like, is it, you know, would it be a fairly medium-sized department? Like, Dalhousa is a big university.
2: I think it, like we have quite a large biology department and a lot of students. Marine biology is probably one of the main, if not one of the main programs at Dow, which it's known for. And I'm happy to say that like we actually have quite good queer representation, um, both you know, gay, bi, pan, but also um, non-binary and trans, we have actually quite good records. We're working on it. We have a long way to go still. But, you know, my best friend's also queer marine, queer marine biologists. So we we find each other and we find ways to support each other. And there was actually a recent conference here in Nova Scotia, which was directly focused on queer Atlantic Canadians in STEM, which I think was amazing to be there and be among all these other queer scientists, and many of which were from Dow and St. FX and Mount St. Vincent and, and Acadia. So we had a really, really the community is growing and more people are trying to connect and i think that's why we're seeing a bit more representation but again we still have a long way to go
0: so i'm going to jump in there because that was going to be one of my questions and i was now i have you and i can ask you how the conference went (laughs) because i think i mentioned this to you that i've gone to that conference for oh goodness since 2019 2018 yeah and it's been fantastic and it's grown exponentially and i mean since COVID has had to go online now it's back in
2: person but uh How'd it go? Oh my gosh. I was in heaven. It was... So I presented some of my work on reef fish um, there, and it was a blast. Landon did a fantastic job at organizing everything. We had such amazing speakers, um, many amazing uh, trans professors as well, which was so awesome to see. Um, and we had an amazing panel, but the pros and cons being queer in science. We had amazing talks from people, not only from gender and um, sexual orientation minorities, but also along race as well. So that was really interesting to see that intersectionality represented at the conference, and it was just very cool to also see the diversity of stuff that queer people are working on. We, have a, we had everything from, you know, stars and astronomy and planets to, you know, new AI technologies and um, cancer treatments to my area, which is mean you know, protective areas, and even stuff directly on queer um, culture and queer studies like um, queer nightlife, um and any and as well as uh, relationships, so we had so much, and that was really amazing to see that crew people are in working in every different field, and we're starting we're starting to make waves and we're starting to make a difference and I think that's what alexis um putting back to what Alexis said, we have a holistic understanding uh, of certain things, and I feel like we have a voice that's useful and should be heard um in all disciplines, and I feel like we have something to bring, and that was really demonstrated here,
0: yeah. And just for listeners too as well. So the the conference uh, that that Aaron is referring to is the Qat Can Stem uh, Colloquium, I believe. I'm trying to grab the dates here. It was October, I believe, nineteenth to twenty first or twentieth to twenty first at yeah. Mount Saint Vincent University.
1: It was, I think, yeah, just just the other week. But what we should do is we'll put a link in the show notes to it because it's an annual event. Mm -hmm. And we should definitely be there next year. I mean, I would love to, you know, connect with some folks there and and hear what they're doing. I think that would be great. Um, Can I jump in there, Erin, and ask? So, when we're talking about then the intersections of your identity and what you're bringing into science from your background, so you are uh, Indian, Italian, and Middle Eastern, and you're also bi-religious. Just so you're from Toronto, were you were you born in Toronto, or did you move over?
2: Yeah, so I was born in Toronto. Um, My mom's side is Italian, so my great-grandmother was born in Italy, but they moved over in the 20s. My dad is born in Mumbai, India, Um, but the Indian community, uh, the Jewish Indian community in India has been there for over 2,000 years. We are originally from Israel and Judea. Uh, We came over due to a shipwreck um, because we weren't two great navigators or... We were most likely escaping um, the destruction of another temple at the hands of the Romans or another group coming in to conquer Jerusalem. So we escaped 2000 years ago and we set up shop in Mumbai. And uh, well, way before Mumbai was a thing, um, the villages on the Kokan coast of India. And we're called the Ben Israel. So we're an, an ancient tribe of Jews who ended up in India. And now um, we've moved all over the world. Not many are left in India. Many, but everyone's kind of moved over to Canada, the US, UK, Israel. So that's where I'm coming from. And my mom is Roman Catholic, dad is Jewish. So I was raised along those religions. And also being Indian, I also got quite um, a lot of experience with um, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, because those are primary religions of India. And I have many family members who practice those religions, and I have many friends who do as well. So that was also a really good upbringing to kind of see all those things come together, which India is one of the most diverse countries in the world. And I think the uh, Western nations could learn a lot from India and um, other um, Eastern nations, especially.
1: And so with your studies and that is taking you around the world uh, and doing a lot of diving, you're both avid diving, you know, researching that way. I love the photos you sent and we'll put them in the blog because they're super awesome. But so all of those intersections then and also being gay, has that impacted um, like the travel that you do, like in the dives in different locations. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, if you could share a little bit about what that, you know, the layers of your identity there and how that maybe impacts uh, the studies as a, you know, as a, as a world diving traveler.
2: You know, I think, I've, you know, I've been very fortunate to be able to travel um, around the world for my research and also, you know, to visit family and that kind of thing. And I feel like I have to take my identity wherever I go. And with that comes, you know, various issues and sometimes benefits when i travel so for example i have done field work in countries where it's very accepting to be gay um canada is one example of that um, but i have done field work in countries where it's taboo or not accepted so that has had me to you know change the way i present myself to the world and also how i interact with my colleagues but also local communities so i feel like although we can provide really interesting perspectives to where we work and although it gives us this extra set of dimensionality um, when we go to these places we also have to deal with that baggage and we also have to be very cognizant that our safety is you know at risk and we have to be careful so i feel like that's so changing my way i present myself which you know is unfortunate but that's just kind of the way the world is at this time and hopefully it gets much better
1: so it's a little bit, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the elements of the diversity are like the elevating piece and, and that, you know, brings so much more into everything that you do, but it can be, or, under, if I'm understanding you right, like it can, it can narrow and, and be um, add to the layers of the challenge, um, the challenges around that, you know, those levels. Um, yeah, for sure. Which m- many marginalized communities face. So if you have... Um, I guess that's the whole essence of intersectionality, one marginalization and then another and adding those on top just uh, compound the challenges or, or, you know, the layers of, of, I guess, trickiness. As Alexa said, I love that word, um, that, you know, you have to consider more when you're going, you know, into different environments.
2: Yes, for sure. Yeah, I've definitely had to do a lot of pre-trip planning and thinking about how I want to present myself to the community, but also how I present myself to my colleagues and in the academic system, because a lot of these things are still also under consideration, under much discussion, even within, our, even within academia and marine science.
3: And just even building off what Erin is speaking to, you do almost have to be really careful what foot you put forward, depending on the situation that you're in. Um, I've noticed that since graduating from school, you know, various conference events, um, webinars aren't always as diverse as I would like to see, and it 100% changes how I move through the space. Um, I'm definitely, you know, still working on bringing my whole self to my work. Um, but you definitely face or I, and I hope this happens less and less, but I have definitely faced discrimination based on uh, my gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, I think it's especially challenging for I don't know if "elder queer" is the right word because I'm not that old. But when you are already, you know, in the workforce and you have to come out, um, and I think that for everyone who's listening is 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 just important to really to pay attention when when someone raises a concern um, and you notice that someone is, you know, doesn't necessarily fit that norm, providing space for them to feel safe and and comfortable.
0: And Alexa, yourself too, um, have you? What are kind of your um your experiences around your identity and travel while you while you work.
3: I don't do as much travel these days. Uh, traveling takes way more out of me than it used to being someone who um, is differently abled. Um, which is totally okay. Uh, My energy reservations are not as high as they used to be. I've suffered from five concussions. So uh, rest is very important in my life. Um, And that's definitely a facet of my identity. I was also raised um, Jewish. My ancestors immigrated to Canada um, around uh, World War II, uh, being Jewish. Uh, and my family residing in Poland and parts of what is now Russia, Um, it just wasn't safe for our family at the time. I'm no longer uh, someone who really practices uh, the Jewish faith. I'm much more of a spiritual person, but um, I have the most respect and um, very profound understanding of of my upbringing, Um, and I'm still very proud to be Jewish. Um, But definitely it has affected I think, how I move through the world. Um, and again, going back to how I communicate and the spaces that I create. Um, I remember growing up um, being almost triggered around the holidays, you know, when people would say, Merry Christmas, like have, have a great Christmas, and just really feeling like I wasn't seen. Um, and I think especially once I moved, I'm originally from uh, Montreal in Quebec, um, and I grew up in a, in a pretty Jewish community, community. Um, the school I went to um, had a had a great representation uh, of Jewish folks. When I moved out here, I didn't know anyone who was Jewish. Um, I I wasn't able to to kind of find that community. And maybe that also uh, kind of swayed me in a different direction. But ultimately I think it's important just being aware that, you know, we can't just assume that folks all practice the same religion. Uh, And so just being inclusive in our language as much as possible. And I think it's really hard for folks who, you know, are, are part of that norm, you know, there's very within Canada and within, I would say all, almost all of North America. um, There is very much a, almost like a cookie cutter version of, I think what, when you when you think of a North American, what comes to mind? And maybe that's um, just the stereotype that we've been brought up
1: in. Um. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's been, you know, like I think even for my, like in growing up, I grew up in a small town in, in Ontario was a, was a small town in Brampton, but it was very, you know, there wasn't a lot of diversity in my early childhood. And and it, that's what we're always, you know, trying to break it down for cisgender listeners. And that's why it's so important, like you're saying, around representation and that visibility um, and just pausing, you know, before you assume that, you know. You know, we not everybody uh, celebrates Christmas under you know the Christian faith and and that umbrella, and and maybe thinking about how you're going in how, how you're going into it can make it so much of a nicer interaction and experience for others by doing that, right? Uh, and what I thought was really interesting is when I was in high school, there
3: weren't many openly queer folks. I, I didn't really have anyone to look up to. I think I also suffered from a lot of internalized homophobia. Um, My parents very much, you know, wanted me to find a nice Jewish boy, and that was just not, that was just never what I had in mind, Um, although I wasn't able to verbalize that at a young age, but uh, my parents no longer live in Montreal, and I actually went back to visit uh, with my partner, um, who's also non-binary, and we went back, it was probably in the spring, and even though I felt much more accepted in terms of my cultural heritage and my background, Like, I just felt like I looked out of place and my partner and I were, you know, just walking down a strip mall and we were holding hands and like people were looking at us. And that really doesn't happen in Nova Scotia. I know Nova Scotia Mm -hmm. has a pretty large queer community. And I think um, within Canada, we might have the highest number of folks who are non-binary or gender queer. So it was really interesting to kind of have those contrasting experiences where um, Montreal and Quebec in general have had, you know, massive amounts of immigration over the last few years. and I mean, one of the things I love most about Montreal is the cultural diversity um, because I think diversity leads to you know innovation and just so much of a, a deeper perspective and broadened understanding. Um,
1: but also the food in Montreal. So many great
3: cultures bring so many great cuisines?
1: Absolutely. I'm just wondering, do they think, do you think they lag behind in, in Quebec or Montreal because of the pronouns, like because of the language and it's such a gendered like gendered language that that is maybe.
3: I think that could have something to do with it um that's something that we internally at Meopar have been discussing a lot I mean the language around you know pronouns going ginger neutral it's definitely you know a learning process I just recently learned the term for um like niece or nephew is nibbling um but I didn't know I just was um an auntie u-n-t-y um to my niece um but I didn't know what the term was and someone asked me what you call a nine- a non-binary little little nephew so I had to look it up
1: okay so you spell is nibbling did you say it was yeah. nibbling nibbling no, that's so cute oh I love that and auntie ah, <laughs> nice um but um, yeah I think
3: I think the I don't want to say a language barrier but I definitely think how the French language works with you know conjugation things having you know being fem- feminine or masculine um, is just tricky. It is tricky to, to kind of use neutral language um, with a language that's inherently binary. I always thought it was really weird that a chair could be feminine and a cat is feminine, but you know, like it's just, I know it makes sense to some people, but my brain just had a hard time conceptualizing that. Yeah, no. And it's, it's really interesting
0: too, because like, (laughs) I find the French language in particular really tries to define things into boxes. And one time I asked, I had a French teacher and I was like, why is something like masculine and why is something feminine? And even she was like, oh, well, I don't know. And I think she said feminine words are things that can like explode and then masculine <laughs> words are things that don't. And I was like, okay, no, no. Like this is <laughs> that, no.
1: Hey, sis, all about connecting communities. And thanks to support from TD Bank Group, here is this episode's Connected Community Moment.
0: Okay, listeners, we want to hear from you. Head over to our socials or click the link in the show notes to hop on over to Facebook or Instagram and help us build an ocean identity word cloud.
1: What is an ocean identity, you ask? Well, we thought it would be fun, as we're talking a lot about the intersections of identity in this episode, um, to share one of our own identities. But here's the the kicker, is that it has to be an ocean-related identity. So maybe you're a diver or a queer hyphen snorkeler, or you could put in a Queensland-beach-lover. Um, if you hyphen your two words, it'll become one word in word cloud, which is my, uh, what I'm saying there. So anyway, head over there and, uh, and let's build a word cloud this month that is uh, highlighting our amazing identities that are ocean-based and, uh, and get connected with some ocean-themed fun.
0: We always invite your feedback and thoughts, and you can email them to connect at heycis.com. Link is also in the show notes. This has been a hey Sis and TD Bank Group Connected Communities moment because inclusion matters. Backing things up a little bit, um, because just out of pure curiosity, because Aaron, you mentioned, you know, there's certain places that you had to make that call and say, you know, I just I don't feel comfortable going. Um but what have where have been some of the most interesting dive locations so far for you both?
2: I guess for me. And on that a little bit, like there's definitely like thankfully my field work has taken me to places that are usually pretty accepting. Um, when I referred to that, I was referring to ap- opportunities for graduate school where I've had to make decisions and not even applying because of that. But I have been in many uh, locations where being out and queer is not usually a good thing or it is very taboo. So um, in terms of, so that is more, I guess what I'm referring to on that stance. In terms of best dive experiences, oh my gosh, South Africa, uh, diving in the kelp forests was a fantastic experience. Um, South Africa is famous for its endemic shark species, meaning that there are sharks there that occur nowhere else um, in the world. They're only in that specific area of South Africa. And being able to dive with them and work with them um, for a long period of time was amazing because, you know, you don't see them anywhere. And it's a very... Additionally, it's important for conservation in that you know if we lose them here, we lose them everywhere. So that I think is my favorite, and one of my favorite dive experiences being enwrapped in the kelp forest with these sharks. Uh, another one, I spent all the time in Bermuda and the shipwreck diving in Bermuda is amazing. And that for me was very, very fun. Even we have even good diving here in Nova Scotia, but I'd say South Africa and Bermuda are my top um, experiences in terms of diving so far. <laughs>
1: be, cold, the same, be cold here too.
2: <laughs> I went diving uh last weekend for some kelp field work and it, it well actually it wasn't terrible. I was in a dry suit. So thankfully I was dry. Well it leaked but I was dry the entire time mostly. So that that, that helped to, to deal with the cold.
1: So uh Alexa, what about you? Favorite favorite dive location or experience?
3: That's hard. That's hard to choose favorite dive location. Most of my dives have um, been in the Caribbean, I'm, I'm really fortunate to have been able to travel quite frequently there. Um, but one of my favorite stories that I tell people probably too many times, um, this was uh, when I finished my master's tr- degree, I ended up going on a trip with my dad. Um, he's had a few bucket list trips, but he really wanted to go um, to Freeport to uh, visit Exuma Sound. Um, But anyways, we had really rough weather the first two days. Our dive trips got canceled. So our spirits were a little bit down. Um, But then we were finally able to get out the next day. And we were super stoked. And I usually um, dive with a GoPro. Um, But for some reason, when I jumped in the water, the GoPro froze. And it it froze emitting Bluetooth signal. But it was on, it was emitting Bluetooth, but I couldn't record. Anyways, we're going about our business. We're diving on the reef. um, And two folks jumped in the water. They're uh, dive masters, but they were kind of spearfishing, um, not with the group at a reef roughly 40 feet deeper. So they jumped in 10 minutes before us. And the whole dive, I kind of felt like something was watching me. I don't know if you've ever gotten that feeling, Aaron, where something just doesn't feel right. And we go about our... Go about our dive, we're kind of circling back along the reef, getting ready to go back to the boat. And um, I noticed a piece of fishing line that was caught up in a reef. And um, my master's research focused on ghost gear, uh, commonly called abandoned loss and discarded fishing gear. So I was right in my element and I, you know, flagged my dad and the dive master over. And we were working together to remove this fishing line from, from the reef. And just as we're kind of balling it all up and the dive master was shoving it into his uh, BCD, which is the uh, the vest that helps you control your buoyancy and attaches your air supply to it. um, I kind of look back and all of a sudden there are six reef sharks circling us and I've seen sharks on dives before and I have no problem with them, but Usually they're kind of just like cruising past you, they're doing their thing, but these sharks were hungry and they were, I was nervous. I kind of had a little bit of a like, oh no. Um, Are they big? Are they big or small? Like how? Reef sharks can get pretty big, but they're on the smaller side for sharks. Um, The largest one I think that we saw was maybe five or six feet, um, which was like six of them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So my dad runs out of air, and he is doing his ascent back to the surface, and at this point, I was going to wait down a little bit longer, and so I'm watching my dad go back to the boat as these sharks are circling us I see my dad kind of getting closer, and I still have my GoPro, and I think that because it was stuck with the Bluetooth transmitter on, it was confusing the sharks, and I'm really bummed that it was off because one of them was making a beeline straight for me. And I kept my cool and I used the GoPro and I kind of just pushed the shark away and it kind of swam off and that was it. Um, anyways, after we surfaced, we realized that the sharks were hungry from the spear fishermen or the boat spear fishing uh, 40 feet below and they were curious about the lionfish, which is an invasive species that they were Um, that they were targeting and obviously they did not give up their lionfish so then they came to us thinking that maybe we had food or that we were food Um, but needless to say everyone got back aboard the boat we were all safe Um, and that's a story I'll never forget and I do still (laughs) wish that my GoPro would have been working because that would have been super cool
1: and terrifying could you imagine oh (laughs) Oh, my
0: goodness I'm sitting here like oh and I love learning about ocean animals but oh my goodness I have such like very irrational fear of like deep water and I could not imagine I couldn't I would I'd be peeing myself <laughs> So amazing.
1: Oh, my <laughs> were you both um Aaron and Alexa were you both at Dal for all of your degrees or did you go to other universities and and uh experience you know um uh, inclusive or not inclusive environments in in other particular mm-hmm. academic situations I, across I, Canada or-
3: I did my undergraduate degree and master's degree at Dalhousie, so I did a a Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology and Sustainability, and then a Master's of Marine Management. Um, But my work has always been very focused, or at least my research was focused uh, very heavily on the commercial fishing industry. Um, So I spent a lot of time in uh, remote fishing communities across Atlantic Canada. and those communities are definitely not as queer as others. Um, but even the types of conferences and events that I have been invited to facilitate panel discussions or you know sit on a panel, um, one thing I've learned over time is that if I don't feel that if I don't see the diversity that I'm that I think is necessary, and um, I don't feel like I will be safe or be heard or be able to be myself. Sometimes it's, it's okay to say no. Um, I've had to turn down some opportunities because I felt as if, you know, the narrative that was being shared with the audience wasn't as holistic as it could be. Um, I've also just straight up, you know, asked what's, what's your stance on equity, diversity, and inclusion? How are you trying to make this event accessible? Have you considered this, this, and this? Have you spoke to this person? I think they would be a great addition to your panel. Um, And and I think that is really important, too, in terms of being an inclusive leader is, you know, kind of along the lines of see something, say something. But there's definitely a delicate line of, you know, being able to provide that advice in a way that will, you know, protect yourself, but also help everyone learn and grow.
1: Absolutely. Erin.
2: I can't agree more with all that you said, Alexa. Uh, Those experiences are ones that... In some cases, I also share. I did my full degree at Dalhousie. I'm still finishing up my undergrad. But I also did a a few visitations to other institutions in Bermuda. And also, I was at an institution at Louisiana University's Marine Consortium in deep South Louisiana. So New Orleans, our to Houma, then even further south on the Bayou. And LumCon is an extremely um, accepting and inclusive institution. But of course, being there and engaging with, like being around the local community outside of the institution, that's when I you know, had to be aware that I had to be careful in some cases. But overall, I've had pretty good experiences. I've definitely um, I feel like what you mentioned about saying no to opportunities. I feel like that's so important. You don't want to be in a place that doesn't support equity and diversity. And I'm thankful that many of the opportunities that I've had, um, both at LUMCON and places, are supportive. I also feel like there's a bit of pressure for young queer scientists in terms of, you know, you want to make a place in your career and you want to get opportunities. And for queer scientists and also people of color to say no to a, a possibly an amazing opportunity, Um, I feel like also pressures a lot of people to hide themselves to try and pass by so they can get that opportunity to also compete with other students who may not have these same um, the same oppressive structures that don't permit their actually retention in um, academia or in STEM so I feel like that's also important to realize is I'm guessing a lot of queer and BIPOC students and other other minorities have had to actively say yes to opportunity to try and further themselves if they aren't in a place especially those power dynamics that they aren't in a place to say no and that concerns me
3: uh i'm just gonna say it's concerning because folks end up putting themselves in situations where you know they're continually facing microaggressions and it is affecting them you know their well-being um and it's unfortunate and i think i hope that this trend is changing but i think a lot of diverse folks whether that be in terms of you know, race, gender orientation, sexual orientation, end up leaving the ocean sector and STEM mm-hmm. in terms of actual employment. Um, because it, it is very hard to, um, for lack of better words, get ahead as, you know, someone who doesn't fit the norm in this industry. And I do think it is changing. Um, but there are definitely still struggles. And what Aaron said, you know, when you when you turn down an opportunity sometimes it does leave a sour taste in folks's mouths, and you know what it's it might not necessarily be anything directly about you know that organization or that other you know whatever the situation be but uh, definitely a fine line sometimes and uh, an added pressure that comes along with uh being queer
1: well when you take on an, an event or an opportunity too you you want to be able to experience it fully and not have to be educating everybody when you're there as well. Right. You just want to be there. And, and um, I think that's probably hard as well. If they, you know, it's put back on you to also say, okay, well, this is, you know, this is what a safe space looks like. It, you know, it can take away from actual being present in the moment.
0: Yeah. And I know as a queer person myself, I, you know, have seen multiple times folks be I wouldn't say the word belittle, but at least dismiss to some degree for declining an offer because that individual is like, oh, well, I'm, you know, coming to you as a marginalized community, you should just be taking any offer that you can get. Like, you should be proud that people are seeing your work and acknowledging the work that you've done. But the individual, the queer or marginalized person needs to then look at themselves and be like, is this actually worth my time? Is this worth my safety? Is it worth my security? Is there's so many factors at play that, you know, non-marginalized individuals don't think about and don't have to think about because they haven't had to think about it Um, and I find that comes up so much more in academia than any other spaces because we're just trained to just be like take every opportunity you can get and then run with it but that can't always be the case especially for you know BIPOC and queer and disabled people.
2: I feel like now that I'm you know Applying to graduate schools, um, every supervisor I've talked to, I've actively asked the question like, where do you stand on equity diversity? Do your lab meetings talk about equity diversity? What is the student community like? How are your relationships with local Indigenous communities? Like, these are questions that I have to actively ask and be like, where do you stand? Where does the department stand? If I talk about my work in equity and diversity, how does that fare for my application? How do people react? How will your admissions process? And because in some cases, a lot of universities, people who admit, and sometimes the professors who are deciding things, are very cis old white men, you know, and that is very unfortunate. So I think it's become part of my interview process for professors and future supervisors in you know, where do you even stand and where, where does your lab stand and are you discussing these things.
1: I was just wondering Aaron if and I know Alex you want to jump in there too, but have you ever had like a, when you ask those questions like have you ever had a, a negative response or or perhaps a tonal change in the conversation.
2: No, surprisingly, it seems that like I have always been met with and, and I would g- talk to the supervisor, I'd always also back these up with the grad students as well. Like where does the department stand where does the supervisor stand? And from what I've seen from everybody, it's actually quite amazing. Um, of course, the, everyone prefaces that we have a long way to go. These These are some, you know, systemic issues that still need to be solved. And these are some things to be concerned about and things we're working on. But I feel like now, um, in 2022, especially post um, the BLM protests, post a lot of the other um, major, major equity diversity kind of events or tragedies we have seen as- around the world, I feel like universities and institutions and especially the younger professors are taking notice and be like, we need to be an equity supporting institution. We need to support our students because people from diverse backgrounds make it better. And they realize it. And I feel like there is no room anymore to be not inclusive and there's no room anymore or no kind of excuse to have, for example, an all white, all male department anymore. That is, that is no longer a thing that should be excusable um, at all. And I think everyone yeah. noticed that now.
1: You're absolutely right. And I think it's like 54% of Gen Zers know someone who uh, who uses uh, gender neutral or neo pronouns, like gender neutral pronouns, non-binary pronouns. Um, and so, you know, there's no space left for that yeah. kind of behavior. Yeah. Alexa, sorry, you are gonna jump in there.
3: Yeah, and I was just gonna say, I'm really glad, Erin, that you've incorporated that into your interview process. Um, being someone who's an early career ocean professional, um, and I'm part of eCOP Canada. so I'd encourage anyone who's listening who is an early career ocean professional that means you're within ten years of um, your career to to join eCOP Canada. Um, but to ask like in future sure. employers, what are your what are your stances or what is your uh, definition of of equity, diversity and inclusion? What does that look like in practice? Asking those questions and then, you know, doing a little bit of investigation. I think folks who are with with it, and you're able to tell when something is performative um, versus when something is true allyship, um, and that is that is really important as well. It's not just about uh, it's about making sure that you're putting yourself in in safe spaces um, and making those choices strategically.
2: I like that, yeah. At the end of the day, if you're applying something or going to a job or position, this is benefiting you and your life and your future. which you want has to be a safe space for you. So it is important to actually test the waters and see is it going to be a safe space because you don't wanna be miserable in a place that's not supportive or not accepting because that is a horrible and isolating experience. And I feel like we all need to, unfortunately it's annoying that some of the work falls to us as these communities, but in some cases we have to be careful about ourselves and protect ourselves um, from possibility of uh, those types of things.
0: As you both have been saying, normalize in the interview process, not the interviewer interviewing the interviewee, but the interviewee interviewing the interviewer. That is going to be a tongue twister someday. (laughs) Um, but it's so like whenever I go or have the opportunity to meet with someone, I'm like, ask me questions. I'll ask you questions. Like, let's go back and forth. Let's understand where our common ground is and what you want out of this relationship, what I want out of this relationship and find that, that space. Um, because so often, you know, you go, you're stiff in an interview, you know, no matter if it's for a job or, you know, any opportunity in life, you want to make sure you're coming to the table and being like, this is what, this, these are, this is what I need to be successful in my career. And this is what is important to me. Let's make sure that we're on the same ground, because then if not, then to your point, Aaron, exactly, we're going to be wasting time. So Alexa, I'm going to look at you first. Um, so tell us everything about Ghost Gear in two minutes or less
3: <laughs> oh my gosh everything about ghost gear I, i've done so many projects on this i could write a whole thesis in fact i have um, ghost gear abandoned lost and discarded fishing gear um sometimes called end of life fishing gear which is a little bit different so first um it's called ghost gear because after the gear is lost abandoned or otherwise discarded and ends up in the ocean it could keep fishing like a ghost um so this gear ends up Lost, abandoned, and discarded for a variety of reasons. They usually act in combination with one another. Um, But the most frequent reasons for loss are environmental conditions. Um, You know, the ocean is an incredibly dynamic environment, um, and it's quite easy for gear to accidentally break loose. In Atlantic Canada, the uh, lobster industry um, is one of the most dominant fisheries and they use a lot of gear to support their practices. Um, So in some areas where there's a lot of fishing activity, sometimes uh, gear can accidentally be set on top of one another and that can cause gear loss. Um, If a shipping vessel or a recreational boat accidentally goes over one of the buoy lines at low tide, it could cut the rope. And then the fish harvester might not be able to relocate the gear if it then maybe got swept away with uh, tides or currents. And the impacts are are pretty evident. I mean, I think most folks are pretty aware of the significant entanglement issues that it can pose to marine mammals, as well as seabirds and other marine life. Um, But it also causes, you know, habitat damage and there's economic implications of it too. This some of this lost gear can keep fishing indiscriminately, meaning it no longer is able to control what species it's targeting, and can potentially track not only commercially valuable species like lobster, but other endangered species like wolfish and cusk. Um, so I do know that in recent years, especially in Canada. Um, government efforts have been incredibly helpful in encouraging organizations and fishing associations to not only go out and retrieve this gear, um, but innovate new gear designs that help reduce loss, as well as one of the biggest areas of opportunity is in um, not necessarily just repurposing, but recycling some of this gear, especially the metal for the wire traps, as well as nylon that... um, is used for a lot of netting um, and rope. Um, The end of life fishing gear is, I mean, especially in the commercial lobster industry, the amount of rope that's used and changed annually is just beyond what anyone can imagine. Um, There's a picture that I have in mind that maybe I'll send you after, of a fisherman on a massive pile of rope out in Shelburne, Nova Scotia. And at first you can't even tell that there's someone in the pile of rope because it's that large. Um, And soon rope will no longer be accepted in landfills. So we really need a solution. And there are a few companies that are up and coming in terms of being able to recycle that uh, fishing rope, so. that's everything about ghost gear in a yeah. nutshell. We
1: have, uh, we have a few minutes left um, for this episode, um, and Woodfalls was something we wanted to ask about.
2: Yeah, on Wood Falls, these projects are led by an amazing and very, very diverse team in Louisiana from when I I got to volunteer and assist on these projects, both in Louisiana and in the Gulf of Mexico on a research cruise um, led by the McLean Deep Sea Lab and a really diverse, amazing team uh, from all over the place. Uh, So it's a really, really great group. And I was lucky to be with them in 2018 and then in 2020. Wood Falls, basically, tree falls somewhere in the forest flows down the river, ends up in the ocean somehow sinks down to the bottom, the deep sea is incredibly, you know, nutrient poor in terms of the food that's available. So when anything sinks down to the deep ocean it's a feast for everything, because everyone wants food, everyone needs food. And most of the food that comes to the deep sea is from the from above. Think sinking down, there are things that produce food, obviously, in the deep sea, there are Places where you know you have chemosynthesis, so instead of photosynthesis from the light, you have chemicals producing energy. Um, animals that harness the chemicals to produce energy and food for other organisms. But woodfalls are kind of that thing that falls on the surface, and wood hits the bottom, and there is a whole community of organisms, like wood-boring bivalves, so clams that exist totally just to feed and live in the wood. There are crabs that can digest cellulose. There are species that actively are adapted to eat wood and other plant matter like kelp on the ocean floor. So these ecosystems are weird pulses of energy that come down, and it's all this carbon and nutrient availability. So many species on the deep ocean floor have adapted to feed on falling wood. And that is some of the stuff that the amazing people at LUMCON and um, all over some of the other coordinating institutions are looking at. And by myself, I'm now doing some deep sea research that uses some other woodfall data, um, which I'm really excited to get back into.
1: That's cool. So that would be like then a lot like where there's the river systems flowing out to the ocean. So that's where you were speaking about being in the bayou and that in New Orleans.
2: So in terms of the rivers, like our work in the Gulf of Mexico, um, as I was volunteering with them and assisting with them, of course, the Gulf of Mexico receives major river output from the Mississippi, right? So we have a lot of plant matter coming from there. So we have a lot of woodfalls there, too. So that is really important. We get deep sea woodfalls. We also have shallow water woodfalls and we still have so much to learn about how wood actually, there are organisms at the bottom of the ocean, 2000 meters down that feed on wood. And there's a lot to learn from that.
1: That's super, super cool. cool. You too, yeah. like your sciencey minds. Thank, Thank you really. so much. Yes. Thank you
2: so much for having me. I really appreciate this.
3: I do wanna plug that Neopar's annual network meeting is coming up towards the end of November. Um, so there are lots of sessions that I think will really uh, speak to uh, folks in the STEM Realm, Um, but we're also hosting a workshop with Simply Good Forum um, on beyond the binary bias. So I'm really looking forward to that, and encourage anyone listening to tune in. You can find more info at neopar.ca.
0: But I just want to appreciate uh, you taking your time out of your day today, uh, Alexa, to uh, to join us, and you too as well, Aaron. And uh, we will definitely have you both on together again in. in the next coming months.
1: Thank you. That's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hey Sis. The conversation doesn't have to stop here though. If you would like to get in touch
0: with us to ask us a question or share your story on a future episode, you can email us at connect at simplygoodform.com or visit us on our website at www.heycis.com.